Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. It was Abraham Lincoln who uh, so many years ago said, quote, in this sad world of ours, sorrow comes to all, and to the young it comes with bitterest agony because it takes them unawares. The older, however, have learned to ever expect it. I think what Abraham said, Abraham Lincoln said of his own day could certainly be said of ours. We are in a a world, we're in a nation that is flooded with sorrow and sadness. There are continual attempts to suppress it or to cover it up, uh, to deny it or drown it from time to time. It expresses itself in anxiety, people who have difficulty during the day concentrating. They are gripped by past failures in their life. They sense frustration or agitation or irritability because of it. And on some, in some cases, it results in terrible insomnia. In other cases, it actually causes people to feel such a level of fatigue, they sleep all the time. They're overcome by this sorrow. Some lose their appetite. Others try to kill it with cravings and experience the consequences of weight gain, which just kind of sort of compounds their sorrow and their misery. And they're walking around with all sorts of a sense of worthlessness, contemplating self-harm, even suicide in their depression. Of course, in our age of technology, there are those who try to numb themselves by continual entertainment or those who try to drown their sorrows and their sadness in substance abuse. There are those who try to escape it through recreation and activity or those who just try to sedate it through medication. But whatever the technology, all of this is driven by the same basic presupposition, the same basic notion That sadness and sorrow, whatever it is and whatever its manifestation, sadness and sorrow are to be avoided. They are not something that is desirable. It's not something that's desirable. It's not something that, that is normal. It's not something that any person should have to face or experience. In fact, our whole economy, our whole sort of commercialism, all of its programs seem to be geared in this direction. Giving people avenues and ways to pursue the escape from sorrow and sadness. I mean, you could measure it not just in billions, you could measure it in trillions of dollars now. All of the efforts, all of the pleasure mania, all of the energy and all of the amounts of human interest and time and money that are all expended to help people escape their sorrows, to forget about their sorrows, to numb their sorrows. In contrast to all that, I think you would have to say there's very little effort. In fact, I can't think of any effort to actually get people to be sorrowful. I can't think of any effort to actually encourage them to mourn, to weep, or any of those things. This, by and large, has made its way into the church, we might say, where sorrow 
is also shunned. Everyone is all about being exciting and being enthusiastic. In fact, uh, the, the general notion is that there's so much sorrow out there, the last thing that people need when they come to church is to be heaped on again with more sorrow. So the whole aim of the enterprise now is, is motivational, it's imp- inspirational, it's just uplifting, it's to be encouraging. And the last thing people want to do is be associated with any form of religion that uh, might, be, might be associated with uh, sort of morbid purita- puritanical traditions we're not stuck in those old ways anymore. We are, we are reformed and, and relevant now and, uh, and, and we are in touch with what is happy and joyful and exciting. In fact, if you were to make allowances for sorrow in the church, it might be the very thing that undermines your appeal. It would be to thwart your movement. But today we come to a single statement from Jesus Christ that doesn't fit with any of that stuff. It, it doesn't fit with modern society and its notions of life and it doesn't fit with so many notions of Christianity. It doesn't fit the logic of most people. We come to Matthew 5 into this great Sermon on the Mount that we started to look at last week and this section at the beginning that we know as the Beatitudes, this beloved set of pronouncements where Jesus is describing people who are to be, um, they're to be envied, you might say. They are, they're in an advantageous position. They, they are in a desirable position. This is what the word blessed means. Jesus is describing people who are in a state of blessedness. And we started to see last week how in his first pronouncement, he declares that those who are poor in spirit are blessed. Now you remember this sermon is all about his disciples. He had called his disciples away from the crowd of people, those who had flocked to him, not only from Galilee, but from down in Judea and from up in Syria and across to the Decapolis There were massive, massive crowds that were coming to him because of his healing ministry and his popularity. And Jesus immediately recognized that there was a problem. That his disciples may have assumed that everyone who is coming is truly interested in his message. That everyone who's coming is truly a disciple. And so he calls away his disciples. It says in the very first verse of chapter 5 that he saw the crowds, he looked at the crowds, and in response to seeing the crowds, he called his disciples away to himself. And he delivers this message in order to explain to them the nature of genuine discipleship, the, the, the qualities of a true believer. He begins and Verse 3, talking about the poor in spirit as the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. He ends by talking about uh, those who come to him in the final day saying, Lord, Lord. And he has to declare to them that they will not enter into the kingdom. And whether it's the beginning or the end or everything in between, it's all about those who are going to enter the kingdom, those who are true disciples, because you can't assume that everyone who's in the crowd is a part of the true disciples. And so he's explaining to us what a true follower, what a true disciple looks like. And after opening up, talking about the poor in spirit, we come to his second beatitude today where he says, blessed are those who mourn. 
Blessed are those who are sorrowful. Blessed are those who are sad. They're blessed, he says, because they'll be comforted. So he's telling us here, among those who are true disciples, among those who are true followers, among those who are going to enter into the kingdom, are those who are mourning. Shouldn't be a surprise to us that this is the nature of kingdom people because Jesus himself was described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As a number of Bible students have pointed out through the years, we have so many images of Jesus Christ throughout his life, but we never have any images of him laughing. We have images of him weeping. We have images of him weary. We have images of him angry. We have images of him with all sorts of emotions, but we never see him laughing. It's not as if he didn't. The Bible never says that. It's not as if joy was not a part of his life, but in a real sense, the external realities of sin pressed on his heart every day so that he was burdened with sadness his entire life. And so it shouldn't be a shock to us that those who are true followers of him would also experience a sense of mourning and a sense of of sadness But I think it's important for us to understand the kind of sadness he's talking about. He's not talking about the sadness that dominates the world around us. This isn't sadness that results in hopelessness. It's not sadness and sorrow and mourning that uh, sort of results in, in the agitation that we see around us. This is, in fact, a kind of mourning that leads to blessing. It leads to comfort. And we need to understand that distinction. Now, to do that, we're going to follow the same pattern that we kind of laid out last week by looking at this beatitude, first of all, by way of exposition, and then secondly, by way of illustration. Exposition and illustration. First off, let's just kind of consider the meaning of mourning expounded. The meaning of mourning expounded. This sort of counterintuitive statement that begs begs the question from us, how in the world can it be a blessing to be sad? How in the world can it be a blessing to be sorrowful and to be mourning? Well, as I said, you have to, first of all, understand that this is a different kind of sadness than that which is known by the rest of the world. The rest of the world is saddened. They're saddened all the time, but they're saddened by the by what's taken away from them. They're saddened by what they perceive to be their inability to pursue what their heart desires, which is sin. They're inhibited from their sin by all kinds of things that frustrate them, that make them sorrowful. They're inhibited by laws. They're inhibited by accountability. They're inhibited by social stigmas. They're inhibited by other people who are always fighting and clawing and And pursuing the same sorts of sin. And so they're inhibited by competition and by rivalry and by struggle and by opposition. And all of that stuff is constantly coming against them. And it makes them frustrated. It makes them sorrowful. It makes them sad. It causes them to mourn. And it just multiplies their sorrow. Sorrow upon sorrow. Because of everything that they perceive facing them. 
But none of that is what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying that that kind of sadness is blessed. He's not talking about sadness over not getting the sin that you want to get. He's not talking about sadness about being inhibited in your sin. What he's talking about is sadness about sin itself. He's talking about a kind of mourning that is mourning the presence and the existence of sin in your life. He's talking about what we might call conviction and repentance. Or another way to understand this is that this sadness recognizes the true source of sadness. It recognizes the true source of sorrow, the true source of mourning in your life. The world thinks the source are all of the obstacles. The world thinks the source are all of the rivalries or all the struggle or whatever it is stands between them and what they want, whatever they're after. But the true source of sadness is none of that stuff. The true source of sadness is your sin. The true source of sadness is your, is your rebellion against God. Or you want to say it another way, sin and happiness are incompatible. Sin and happiness are incompatible. They cannot coexist. So as long as there's sin in your life, there will never be true happiness, no matter how many of your idols and desires and pursuits you may acquire. And so in order to experience true happiness and to experience true joy, you have to purge sin. Because sin impedes joy. And because of all that, the true starting place, the true doorway to blessedness and joy, the true pathway is sadness. It's sorrow. The starting place for joy is sorrow. Sorrow over your own sin. Sorrow over your own foolishness, sorrow over your own hard-heartedness and your own rebellion, sorrow over what you have already forfeited, what you have already given up, what you've already surrendered to Satan and all of his ways. When you see the real ugliness of what has taken place in your life, it's natural that you would mourn over it, that you would be saddened over everything you've done. So in spiritual terms, the way to happiness is to be forgiven. And the only way to be forgiven is to see that you need forgiveness. And you'll never understand you need forgiveness until you see yourself as dreadfully lost and you mourn. Or as Jesus says it over in Matthew 9, verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, he says, So, the only way for you to ever be healthy is to first realize that you're sick. That you are sick, that you have problems, that you have issues. If you never realize that you're sick, you'll never seek out a physician. And if you never seek out a physician, you'll never find the remedy, you'll never find the cure, and you'll never be healthy. Well, in the spiritual sense, of course, Jesus is making a spiritual point 
If you never realize how sinful you are, then you'll never seek out the resolution. You'll never seek out the remedy. You'll never seek out forgiveness. You'll never seek out God. And so the beginning point of blessedness, the beginning point of happiness is sadness. You're sad. You may not realize why. You're sorrowful. You may believe that you would do almost anything to escape it, but you'll never escape it unless you realize where it comes from. It comes from the fact that you're sinful and separated from God, that you have become His enemy or the enemy of His law. You, you despise His law. You hate to be held accountable to it. You don't like to be, to be convicted by it. You want your sin. You were born that way. You're in a spiritual state of deadness and blindness and decay. And until you realize your captivity, you won't seek freedom. You won't seek freedom. There are some who wake up to that reality. They realize the filthiness of their hearts is actually the source of all their misery. They mourn over it. And at that point, Jesus says, consider them blessed. When they reach that point, consider them blessed. This is Jesus' ministry. He says he didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. If you're not in need, then he didn't come for you. If you're just fine, have no need of him, then he has no need of you. But if you are a sinner and you know you're a sinner... That's who he came for. He centered his ministry on those who realize that they're broken, that they're prisoners, that they're blind, that they're poor. He centered his ministry on those who understood their true condition and mourned for it, who had come to grips with everything that they had done against God and in their own life. They knew they were sick. They knew they needed a physician. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that all those people in the crowd might have been flocking and might have wanted to have an appearance with him and might have wanted to be considered religious and might have had some interest in his message and probably wanted some sort of blessing from him. They had all of those interests, but too few of them had reached the point of mourning, of sorrow and sadness. So what Jesus is telling us, what he's telling his disciples, is that Christianity is not for people who feel good about themselves, it's for people who feel bad about themselves. It's for people who feel bad. They know they're sinners. This was a message, by the way, of every gospel preacher, every herald of the gospel going all the way back to the Old Testament, always understood the need for this point of entry. The prophets, Jeremiah 9, take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they're laid waste and no one passes through. Lamentations 5, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. Amos 8.10, I'll turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. This has always been the the necessary thing is to realize 
the miserable state that you're in is the result of your own heart and your own condition. To see your rebellion and your wretchedness and to weep for it. And to realize and recognize how much you have given to the devil in your life and how much he has taken from you. And let your superficial laughter and your superficial joy over all the things of the world, let all that stuff be turned to mourning and gloom. Let your pride be exposed. Let it be realized that you've been the enemy of God, resisting His ways. Even in those times when you have blamed God, you've convinced yourself that He's far off from you. He's always been there, but you've just simply been resisting Him, trying to live a double life, being one thing in front of people and another thing behind closed doors or in different circles. Jesus is telling you, you have to mourn. Only mourners are happy. Because only mourners see their sin. And only those who see their sin reach the point of repentance. And only those who are repentant turn to God. Now, as I said, this is a very different kind of sorrow than the sorrow all around us, or even the sorrow you might have been feeling. See, there's lots of sorrow. There's lots of sorrow, but it's not the same sorrow. I mean, we have to admit our world is sorrowful. It's gloomy. It's sad. People are crying out. But it's not all the same sorrow. Paul distinguishes it in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9 between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow or godly grief and worldly grief. In 2 Corinthians 7 9 he says, I rejoice not because you were grieved. I can't rejoice in grief. I rejoice not because you were grieved but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's two kinds of grief. There's two kinds of sorrow. There's godly grief and there's worldly grief. There's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. And, and worldly sorrow, he tells us, leads to death. It produces resentment, it produces despair, it produces depression and hopelessness and emptiness and darkness and guilt. And it just compounds on top of itself more and more and more and drives you into the darkness of death. People deal with this all kinds of ways, as I said, the guilt and, and the shame and the sorrow, they, they, they make excuses For their behavior, they try to shift the blame off of themselves. They react to their uh, spiritual bankruptcy by just simply trying to deny it altogether. They they throw themselves into some sort of virtuous cause, some sort of uh, movement that they think is noble so that they can balance out uh, what they know are all of their bad deeds. 
Even if they're not involved with a church, even if they're agnostic, they want to look at themselves a certain way and so they, they, they volunteer or whatever it might be. For other people, they know that they're prob- they have problems, they know that they have violated social norms, they know that they're guilty at some level, but they try to drown it with alcohol or substance abuse. For other people, it might be religion. As I said, there are those who just try to escape it, numbing themselves through alter realities and video games and entertainment. But none of that, none of that is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a completely different kind of sorrow, which Paul describes as godly sorrow. And he even, he even elaborates on it in the next verse, 2 Corinthians seven eleven, where he talks about earnestness. That is, that is now a sincerity when it comes to righteousness. You aren't just temporarily sorrowful so that you can appease other people around you and escape their scrutiny, but just go back to your sin. You are earnest. You're eager to leave behind what it is that has been exposed. Secondly, he talks about vindication of yourselves. Godly sorrow produces a strong desire to restore your testimony. To, to prove to other people the change that's taken place. Indignation, which is outrage over your own sin. That you now hate what you previously cherished. Or fear, which is uh, no doubt a fear not only before God, but a fear of sin. You used to not fear the consequences of sin, but now you know what they are. And so this fear is produced within you through this sorrow so that you don't want to go near the sin anymore. Longing, which is a sort of yearning for restoration, first of all, between you and God, and second of all, between all the people that you have destroyed relationships with all around you. Now you want nothing more but to see all of that restored, and that is a part of the longing of your heart. Paul talks about zeal, which throughout the book of Corinthians is is always used as a fervent desire for holiness. Now you have a new pursuit that wasn't there before, an avenging of wrong which truly repentant people want to do. They have a strong desire to make things right. Where there has been wrong, where they understand they have committed some sort of injustice or some sort of, uh, some sort of infringement on other people, they want to make that right, no matter what the cost, like Zacchaeus, multiple times over if I have to in order to restore what I've stolen from other people. This is godly sorrow. This is the sorrow that truly comes to see your state. It comes to a real sense of grief over what sin is and what it has done in your life. It is some sort of temporary remorse. It's an honest assessment of your own rebellion and all of the rippling consequences it's brought Godly mourning. John Calvin says, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption, we recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good and purity of righteousness rest in the Lord alone. We cannot seriously aspire to Him before we begin 
to become displeased with ourselves. This is why with godly sorrow, there is no more defensiveness. There's no more blame shifting. There's no more self-justification. There's no more resentment about accountability and scrutiny. There's just the joining of your voice with the voice of God to declare yourself filthy. The Westminster Catechism says, in repentance, a sinner, out of sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins. As contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. This is the mourning that Jesus is talking about. This is the weeping through which you enter the kingdom of heaven. By the way, it's not just the way you enter, it's the way you walk. It's the way you carry on your life because sin doesn't end the moment that you confess for the first time. It is something that continues in our fallen bodies and fallen state. So we continue to mourn every time we see it. We're like Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when he says that he and the other apostles existed as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There is an ongoing lament every time you have to see the sin in your heart. When Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, the very first one said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. I know it's counterintuitive. I know it doesn't make sense to a watching world who is doing everything they can to escape sorrow. But Jesus is telling you to be sorrowful. He's telling you to mourn. Because He's calling you to a whole new attitude towards your sin. A whole new attitude, a whole new perspective on sin. And when you reach this point, when you deal with the true source of your unhappiness, which is your sin and your separation from God, when you come to Him, His promise is you will be comforted. When you see your sin and when you see your sickness, you come to Him as a physician He heals you. He forgives you. He offers you grace. You find Him full of mercy, full of compassion, full of forgiveness. And He floods your heart with joy. And you're comforted, He says. You're comforted. He didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. And if you're in that class of people, If you're among those who identify as the sinner, then he has much for you. But he cannot help people who do not believe they have a need. He cannot help people who really are not that troubled by their condition. So, 
Only mourners are happy because only mourners realize the true source of their unhappiness and are able to deal with it. They reach the place of mourning. They reach the place of repentance. And when they reach the place of repentance, they leave their sin behind and turn to God. And they're comforted. So, if that is the meaning of mourning expounded, let's take just a few moments to think about it exemplified. And really, this is all over the Scripture, as I said earlier. I mean, every gospel herald has understood this and made this a part of their message. And and so, Old Testament, New Testament, you can find numerous examples, uh, even uh, as Mike read this morning from Psalm 51. I mean, a classic example of David mourning, grieving over his sin, calling out to God for his mercy. And Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, talks about himself as the chief of sinners. And he grieved and mourned uh, even as he rejoiced over the Lord's grace in his life. So many places you could go, but I want us to just briefly go this morning to this well-known passage in Luke chapter 15 that we know as the story of the prodigal son. Luke 15 verse 11 tells us about a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. This would have been his inheritance that it would have been his right to demand when his father passed away. But really, it was not very uh, convenient for his father right now, nor was it even his obligation. It wasn't his father's obligation to do anything at this point, but he did. Now, he wouldn't have had, you know, billions of dollars in a bank account. It wasn't like in these days you kept a lot of liquid cash around. I mean, your, your inheritance was the land and the building and the cattle and all that other stuff. So there was no other thing the, the father could do if he wanted to sort of give something to his son. There was nothing he could do except to just liquidate. I mean, he had to go out there and actually, he actually had to cut into his own standard of living. He had to cut into his own means of income by getting rid of livestock and probably selling lands and all those other stuff. And he went out and did that. It says in verse 12, he divided his property between them. And of course, the son, once he receives his money, says that he goes off into a distant country, a distant land. This is the picture of the sinner who takes all of God's goodness and all of God's grace, all of God's gifts in his life, however God has shown them to him, whether it's his home and his family and the love that he has there, the support, all the blessing from his, his parents and his friends, all the opportunities that God has given to him. He takes all of that stuff, all those blessings, and he uses them to pursue things that are directly against God's will. The sinner, he or she, just throws these things back in the face of God. In fact, this young man probably feels like it was actually his father and all the rules of his father that were preventing him from really enjoying life, from really being fulfilled in life. In his mind, the primary obstacle in his way was his father and his household. And so in his mind, the key for his happiness was to get as far away as he could 
to go somewhere where anonymity would allow him to pursue whatever he felt like he wanted to. He wanted to be left alone. He would tolerate religion, no doubt, if, if only there was approval of his conduct. He probably still wanted God's blessings. He just didn't want God's law. And so he runs off to a far country. And of course, we know what happens. He spent everything he had. He squandered all of his money on reckless living. And then, after he had done all that, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So here he is thinking that he was pursuing happiness and he ends up at a place of sadness. He ends up at a place of sorrow and misery. But the difference with him is in verse 15. He came to himself. He came to his senses as it's translated. He didn't reach that point of sorrow and begin to, or, or I should say continue to blame his parents or blame God or blame the, whatever is going on around him, the circumstances. He didn't, he didn't do any of that stuff. He came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread and I'm dying here with hunger? I'll get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. This is godly grief. This is the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about. There is no bitterness against his father or mother. There are no excuses. He's not coming back trying to justify himself, trying to hide any of what took place. There are no demands. He doesn't come back and ask for more inheritance or more handout or anything like that. If anything, there's just a request. And it's not even based on what he thinks he deserves. He he knows he doesn't deserve anything. He understands his father would be totally justified if he rejected him out of hand. And so he just comes with a humble request. Seeing if there's any room in his father's heart to put him on the lowest level. The the, the, the laborer, the mystios, the servant. These are the ones who had no guarantees. They, they, they would work a day, and if they were called back the next day, that's fine. If not, they were not. He wasn't even asking for a guarantee. He wasn't asking for accommodations, which would go typically to the household servants. He wasn't even asking on that level. He wasn't asking to be brought back to the main home. He wasn't asking to be brought back to the family table. He wasn't even asking to be called a son. He is just pleading on the goodness and kindness of his father. Of course, we know what happens. We know that his father responds 
because he sees this in the life of his son. The son comes and he says, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. This is the place of, of mourning that Jesus is talking about, like David in Psalm 51, against you and you only, David says, speaking to God. I've sinned against you. So you're justified when you speak against me and you're blameless when you judge me. If you were to take away everything I had, if you were to take away my reputation, if you were to take away my home and my family and my relationships, if you were to cast me out, you would be totally justified. I couldn't blame you. I couldn't be angry with you, God. When you speak, you're justified. This is what the Son is saying. This is sorrow. The way Jesus is talking about. He's not agitated. He's not restless. He understands that he can't drown this in some substance. He understands he can't just distract this with more pursuit of sin. He understands all that stuff. He only really has one hope, and that is the mercy of God, or the mercy here of his Father. But what he finds is what every repentant sinner finds. He finds a heavenly Father. He finds an earthly Father in the parable, heavenly Father in the spiritual sense, who comforts. He takes his son who has no claim to anything and he puts a robe on him. He gives him a ring which signifies him as now a part of the family again. Brings him to the feast table. Calls everyone there to celebrate. He brings him right into the family. Full member. Full recipient of any inheritance that's still coming. Brings him in and gives him all of that. This is what God does. For those who see their condition, for those who realize this pig pen that they're in and turn away from all of that. They reach the point of sorrow and turn away from that filth and turn to God as if God is all they have left. That point of sorrow what they find is comfort. What they find is grace and mercy. What they find is happiness and joy and all the things that were so elusive to them in their pursuit of sin. This is why Jesus says you're blessed if you're sorrow. You won't hear this. The world is not going to tell you you need to be sorrowful. Your friends are most likely not going to tell you, well, you, you actually, you need to be sad. I recommend sadness to you. Your therapist, your teacher, your politician, or whoever it is, they're not going to tell you, I really want you to be sad. But the most important person in the world tells you, Blessed are you when you mourn. Father, we're so grateful for this message. I pray for those who are here this morning who have been sorrowful and sad, but they didn't know why. 
I pray for them that they would see the source of their sadness and they would mourn. That they would have a godly grief. They would cry out to you like the prodigal did. And Lord, I pray that through that morning they would repent and turn to you and find the comfort that you so freely give. How grateful we are that the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, he bore our sorrows on the cross. He took our shame and paid the penalty so that all the grief and all the sadness and all the sorrow that we have can be laid on Him and we experience the joy of restoration and forgiveness. I pray for those who are here this morning in need of that. Would you guide their hearts to you? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.